This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. To navigate the complexity, WIPO's specialists use data analytics. They create market intelligence and financial insights. Information becomes knowledge. Our infrastructure is now data, information and knowledge. We call it the WIPO Knowledge Network. It guides policymakers and innovators across the globe in shaping the future. For the last episode of Season 1 of the Law Bites podcast, new episodes will resume in September, we return to WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization. WIPO is a UN agency focused on intellectual property, and it previously arose in episodes with Jamie Love when we spoke about a proposed WIPO broadcasting treaty and in the context of Canadian copyright law reform. This episode focuses on a non-treaty initiative from WIPO called BRIP, which stands for Building Respect for Intellectual Property. While the details remain a bit sketchy, the basics are that BRIP will be a database of allegedly infringing websites. The database could be used by advertisers to stop advertising on those sites, payment providers to stop service, or even site blocking initiatives to mandate ISP-level blocking of the sites. Yet the BRIP database currently envisions the possibility of lobby groups, such as the movie and music associations, inserting sites into the database with no oversight, no review, and not even any transparent standards. Now that approach caught the attention of Rick Shira, a lawyer in New Zealand with the firm Lounders Jordan and one of that country's leading IP and internet law experts. Rick posted a Twitter stream on the risks associated with false intellectual property accusations, speaking from the experience of one of his clients. While the technical connection between Canada and New Zealand wasn't great, leading to some patchy sound during our conversation, his story is an important one. We started by discussing the basics of the proposed BRIP database. It's not entirely clear. Uh, reports that I've seen suggest that uh, it will be a combination of law enforcement, so for example, copyright uh, law enforcement agencies within particular countries, uh, or uh, even possibly rights-holding organizations, for example, the Motion Picture Association of America or the Recording Industry Association of America or all their affiliates in various countries. Uh, we don't quite know. Uh, there is no publication of that list of authorized contributors. If indeed, they've, uh, WIPO has been accepting contributors at this stage. I, I would assume that they have been. And uh, one would hope that that list will be published so that at least there is some public scrutiny. Has WIPO identified what kind of oversight or review they might incorporate into that process? They have in the sense of saying that they won't uh, provide any oversight or review of the uh, veracity of the infringement or the seriousness of the infringement of a site. So effectively, uh, as far as we can gather from what WIPO has published, these authorized contributors will will directly place uh, references to allegedly infringing sites into the database without any scrutiny or filtering by WIPO. 
Wow. So no oversight, no review. The groups identify sites. They tell WIPO that they will take a bona fide approach and they go into the database. Has, has WIPO talked about the standards that they'd either like to see or that they'd expect these submitters to adhere to? Uh, no, they haven't. And as I say, we don't. When I say uh, bona fides, that's my supposition as to what the agreements between WIPO and these organisations will say. We don't know. Uh, we, it, you know, at, at the ultimate extreme, it could simply be WIPO says, "Look, we know and trust you. Put whatever put whatever you like into the database. We we know and trust you, and we trust that you won't do this maliciously." Okay, so no oversight, no even published standards at this point in time, and to our knowledge, not even a clear-cut list of who gets to submit to this BRIP list. No, that's right. Okay, and, and certainly for uh, from a Canadian perspective, for example, this very idea of, of creating a, a site-blocking list, in effect, and this has a feel a little bit like that, uh, will ring familiar, and it, it will in a number of other countries as well. Such an approach as part of a website blocking system was rejected by our telecom regulator last year. We had just finished a Canadian copyright review that also didn't recommend a site blocking system. But that said, there are some countries that have it. Is there a sense that that BRIP could play into that with site block, with a real linkage between, on the one hand, this unaudited, un unreviewed, unoversighted database then being used for those that want to see site blocking initiatives implemented within their own jurisdiction? Well, I think the initial target and the initial promotion of it is that it will be for uh, advertisers to gain authorised access to the list. That's that's the, certainly what WIPO has published at this stage. But it doesn't take a great deal of imagination to to predict that when such a list comes into existence, it could be easily used for other things. And site blocking is an obvious example where uh, you know, there's a very convenient list that has been uh, supposedly provided by uh, reputable organisations from the various countries. And so it will be a, an easy touchstone for those who consider uh, that uh, site blocking is a good idea to come and have a look at and use. And, you know, one can imagine WIPO uh, agreeing to that at some point in time. Right. Now, you've had some experience with, as I mentioned earlier, false accusations when it comes to intellectual property. And you recently published uh, sort of an essay on Twitter that, that highlighted some of that experience. It's really one of the things that triggered this discussion. Uh, I was hoping we could talk a bit about that. And, and why sure. don't we begin with a discussion about Mega, uh, the site, the service, and the kinds of things that it faced, and, and then get a little bit into the implications or the effects of some of these the IP accusations that followed. I'm going to show you what mega.nz is and why you should make a free account with them. You get 50 gigs of online storage with them. Cloud storage is pretty fantastic. You can back up uh, any data you want and have access to it anytime. Mega is a, a cloud storage uh, facility. It's based here in New Zealand, formed in uh, early 2013 and has been running since that time from New Zealand. It has 
operations uh, primarily in Europe, uh, South America, has about 150 million uh, users around the world. Uh, not many in New Zealand, could be quite small, but certainly a lot in South America and Europe. Uh, uh, it, its point of difference, I guess, is that it is it provides uh, user-controlled encryption. Uh, so you encrypt the whatever you're uploading, you encrypt in your own browser using Java. It's uploaded in encrypted form and stored in encrypted form by Mega in a manner which doesn't enable Mega to access it because you hold the encryption key and are in full, full control of it. So it's a, it's a great service that's uh, you know, similar in, in some functionality set uh, in, in some functionality to say Dropbox or some of the other cloud storage where you can sync with your own device and so on. But its point of difference is that it's uh, user-controlled encryption. Okay, so a higher level of, of privacy and security from a user perspective uh, than one might find in other cloud services. And in, as you note, uh, hundreds, over 100 million users, 150 million users around the world, which is obviously uh, a pretty significant number. Just before we get into some of the things that it experienced, there are some people I think that in the past made an association between that service and Kim.com. Uh, yeah, so that, does that exist today or that's, that there is no association? No, there's no association. You know, that may explain to some extent some of the things that we'll talk about, but uh, there is no further uh, connection. Okay, so that's good to, to put that out on the table. Well, what yeah, did and you... I, I should, to, Michael, I should say, just for, so that your readers are aware, I act for Mega, so, um, you know, I obviously am somewhat biased towards it, but uh, hopefully some of the things that I'll be, uh, be saying can be treated objectively anyway. Rick's concern with BRIP stem in part from personal experience, starting with a report by NetNames about his client, Mega, the online cloud storage provider. Yeah, so in its initial stages, because of, you know, uh, probably quite understandable scrutiny that came upon Mega at the start and uh, Mr. Dotcom's larger than life way of, of doing things, there was uh, some fear, I guess, from uh, intellectual property protective organizations and enforcers that. Uh, Mega was simply a repeat of the previous allegedly infringing uh, operation that they had. As I say, it's, it's, it's a very different operation. So uh, once people understand that, most people are pretty pretty happy that it's it's, it's not of the same ilk if there was any problem with the previous one. But uh, they they. I guess it faced quite a lot of scrutiny because of that, and, and because that was the reason why I became involved. Because they wanted Mega wanted to make sure that it was scrupulously compliant. Of Mega, Mr. Dotcom in particular, prompted uh, Mega to be put in as a soft target. They certainly didn't bother to contact Mega or to do any real great research as to whether Mega should be included. And the simplest way of, of seeing that is when you uh, look at uh, there was a particular slide that was published by one of the authors of the report when the report was launched base which sets out uh, a shopping list of criteria comparing what you might what they would call a cyber locker compared to a simple cloud storage facility such as dropbox uh, side by side uh, uh, 
criteria, NIGA just doesn't fit within the description of CyberLocker. So they got it completely wrong. We wrote to, uh, to NetNames and to Digital Citizens Alliance to ask them to remove, to withdraw the report, or at least to excise NIGA from it, but they refused to play ball. So that was, um, that was uh, very unfortunate. Mega at that stage was a pretty, pretty new startup and, you know, it could have had a dramatic effect. We, you know, that was, that was my view of things, but Mega wanted to be sure that uh, its view of the report in terms of it being false and defamatory was not just a personal view. So we approached one of the leading intellectual property uh, law firms in, in the United Kingdom, a law firm which normally acts for the media industries and film companies, so not a, not a, a firm which is inclined to take a laissez-faire approach to intellectual property protection, a firm called Oldswang, which has since uh, merged with Nabarro, I think, and had them review court and uh, they in turn obtained uh, input from uh, Grant Thornton here in New Zealand to, um, to look at mega systems to, to an on the ground check, review files, et cetera, et cetera, to see you know, what the level of infringement was, if any, and to determine what exactly was meant by uh, user controlled, encry controlled encryption and so on. So that report from Oldswang, which is available on Mega's site, concluded uh, conclusively that the NetNames report was not only false, but was clearly defamatory of Mega. Unfortunately, at that stage, Mega, as I say, was a, was a pretty new startup, so it didn't have, a, didn't have enough funds really to justify taking a a very complicated defamation action in the United Kingdom and defamation on the part of a company versus another company is another level of complexity. So we unfortunately had to leave it at that. And we thought, well, or Mega thought, well, that's unhelpful, frustrating, disappointing that there should be a report like this sitting out there on the internet, uh, alleging these things about Mega, but you know, hopefully it'll be, as we say, tomorrow's fish and chip wrapper. People will just forget about it, and it'll it'll you know be one of those historical points of interest, but not too damaging. Unfortunately, that was not to be the case. What then happened was uh, that U.S. Senator Leahy picked up the report. Now, whether that was on his own initiative or whether he was prompted to do so, we don't know. But in a relatively short time after the report was published, he wrote to Visa and MasterCard, basically saying to them, look, you have said that you will do things, you will try and do things to stop the flow of money to these seriously infringing sites. Here's a report which shows you the types of sites that you should be doing something about. Uh, a report prepared by uh, NetNames on behalf of a, a, a 
of a rights holding, uh, supported by a rights holding organization, lobby group, Digital Citizens Alliance. And you should stop providing service to these sites. We didn't, Mega didn't immediately, Mega certainly didn't see the, see the letter initially, but very shortly after that, uh, we have found out since, MasterCard and Visa blacklisted Mega. Uh, I didn't cover this in my in my tweet stream, but it it certainly caused a huge amount of problems for Mega, not just in terms of payment providers or or credit card companies, but in terms of its banking arrangements generally. Uh, you know, once you are blacklisted by the two, two of the leading credit card companies in the world the banks start to look um, very carefully at you and it took quite a lot of persuasion to ensure that Mega had just general day-to-day -day banking services as a result of this blacklist. But the biggest impact was that very shortly afterwards, on less than 24 hours notice, Mega was contacted by its main payment provider at the time, PayPal, to say, we are withdrawing service from you. Now that came as an absolute shock to Mega because only months earlier, and I had been directly involved in this, we had gone to extraordinary lengths to satisfy PayPal that Mega was a legitimate site, that it was very conscious of uh, doing what it could to ensure Copyright infringement was not encouraged and was discouraged under normal rubrics such as the DMCA and our equivalent laws and the e-commerce directive in Europe and New Zealand laws and Australian laws and so on and so forth. You know, normal notice and takedown, normal policies to discourage copyright infringement, active steps to ensure people are aware of that. All of the things that legitimate and reputable sites do to ensure that copyright infringement is discouraged. We had satisfied PayPal on all of those counts that Mega was a site that it could do business with, but on less than 24 hours notice, prompted by Visa and MasterCard, in turn prompted by Senator Leahy, in turn prompted by the NetLands report, Mega uh, was uh, withdrawn from service by PayPal. Now for an online, uh, uh, companies such as Mega, particularly one which is at the forefront and, and promotes its services as being at the forefront of privacy protection, the cessation of service by its main payment provider, which also to an extent provides privacy protection for people in terms of their payment mechanisms, was very damaging. Uh, you know, you you set up a service reliant on these types of payment providers and it was, draw, it was withdrawn at the drop of a hat. But that was something which, you know, at the point in time, it was pretty touch and go for Mega. You, you suddenly had your main payment provider cut off, your main source of funds cut off, you're having to scurry around and find other payment providers with whom you don't have relationships, so that takes time. And, you know, because Mega had very supportive stakeholders and users, it was able to survive. But, you know, 
there were times at that during that period where it was it was hand to mouth. Okay, so that's quite a story. So it, it starts, as you say, with the net names report, one in which you seek to counter because there's clear um, clear inaccuracies and indeed go so far as to argue defamatory content in there in terms of some of the claims they're making that extends to the, and the way you try to, of course, counter that, as you mentioned, is to, is to go out and actually commission an independent report from, from, from an organization, from a firm that typically aligns itself or represents rights holders. It says that, yes, you are operating in an, an appropriate manner, counter to what the report said, but that, the, that really can't stop, does not stop the avalanche of payment providers, politicians, and others really abandoning the service and, in a sense, putting it on, on life support, almost threatening its existence, based simply on, on false accusations from an intellectual property perspective. Correct. So, uh, you know, it's a salutary lesson as to how these sorts of accusations, if they are taken up by people of influence, can be extraordinarily destructive. Right. It highlights the need for, for I guess, oversight and review as a starting point because, you know, it's striking site like Mega at least had resources to be able to retain you and others to try to ensure that it could try to respond. And even then uh, still faced such a significant backlash that really threatened the service. One wonders how many other sites and services out there faced with, with a claim, a similar kind of claim, perhaps inclusion on something like this BRIP database would be able to respond if they didn't even have those kinds of resources to start with. Yes, and I mean, as I say, you know, this is all, this is a story in hindsight. At the time, we didn't necessarily know what was going on. We we certainly knew that the net names report had come out, but we didn't know the extent to which it it had infiltrated via Visa and MasterCard. It was only some time later, years later, that we really discovered that Mega had been put on a blacklist and suddenly worked out, well, gosh, this is the reason why uh, it's having trouble with its banking services and this is the reason why PayPal ceased service. So, and that was, you know, as, as you say, Mega was lucky in the sense that it had good support from its stakeholders and from its users and therefore it was able to survive on life support while it uh, investigated what had gone on. For most startups, and I act for you know a number of startups on an ongoing basis, if that had to happen to them, there would be no way that they would have the resources to discover what had gone on and no way to you know, support themselves for that period of time while they got back up and running with different payment providers. It would have driven them out of business. Right. You know, given the experience you had with Mega and seeing the the effect that these kinds of claims can have, as well as having now taken a look at what Whitebow seems to be proposing, um, obviously you're, you're highlighting the risks associated with creating a database that isn't vetted, there isn't review or oversight, and the damage that that can have where there is a false uh, or inaccurate claim. Do you have a sense or have ideas about how WIPO ought to go about fixing this? Is there a mechanism with due process or otherwise that that might at least try to avoid the kind of outcome that, that you've just described? Well, I think, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I'm a great fan of these sorts of 
lists from the start. But if such a list is because, as we talked about earlier, you know, whilst one might argue that um, targeting advertisers and so on might be a legitimate way of 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 stopping clearly malicious sites and uh, imprinting sites from continuing, lists such as these tend to take on a life of their own and, and your experience in Canada and others around the world of site blocking lists or lists that are used to uh, treat people differently, you know, the US, USTR lists and so on and so forth, uh, can, can be quite damaging. But if such a list was to be created, um, then certainly you would expect, first of all, uh, WIPO to publish the people who are on the list. You would expect WIPO's uh, terms and conditions uh, as to what sort of sites can be put on the list to be available for public scrutiny so we can all see the standards to which these authorised contributors should be adhering and test those in terms of uh, in, in terms of the list. Uh, before, I would have thought, before anyone can be put on the list, there needs to be some independent uh, expert review. Now, whether that's a, a court or tribunal or whether uh, there is some faster track to that. I mean, I do have sympathy with, uh, with uh, rights holders in some senses that the court process is cumbersome, lengthy, expensive, and by the time you get through it, uh, the issue that you were trying to attack has long since disappeared. And that's, as we can see from some of the proposals in the United States, with CASE, the fast-track, uh, low-level uh, court system that is being proposed, you know, there are, there are measures which perhaps might address that. There's never going to be a right and wrong answer to this. There's always balance and compromise. But at the very least, in this sort of list, there needs to be very expert scrutiny. And I would have thought uh, the ability for anyone that is proposed to be put on the list to be advised of that and given the opportunity to rebut their inclusion on the list. If, that, if MEGA had been given that opportunity, then I have no doubt that it would not have been included in the NetNames report because it was just so clearly not caught within the criteria that the report set forth. So that's the sort of thing that should be available to uh, uh, to sites before, or at least before they are their names are published on that list. Rick, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Hey, thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure talking to you. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at P-O-Box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. 
Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.